All right, as we always do, we're going to jump into God's Word this morning, so go ahead and grab your Bibles. If you didn't bring a Bible, you can grab one from the pew, or pull it up on your phone, of course. And we will be in the book of Colossians, chapter 3, starting in verse 18. It's roughly page 984 in in the pew Bible. All right, we're just doing four verses this morning, but they they pack a punch. So once you're there, go ahead and stand up. All right, go ahead and follow along with me as I read uh, Colossians 3, uh, verses 18 through 21. Paul's writing, he says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for this time together. Uh, We thank you that we get to gather, we get to sit uh, and just be at rest with one another, hearing from one another, hearing from you, worshiping you, praying together. We just thank you for this time. It's been a good time so far, and we expect it to continue. So I pray that your word would um, pierce our hearts this morning, and um, especially in a passage that's a little bit uh, controversial or culturally, uh, we just present uh, our hearts to you and ask that you would be Uh, our leader, and that we could fear you uh, above all. So we give you this time, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, go ahead and have a seat. All right, so we just like jumped right in there, and you know, the question that comes when you just jump in and read those four verses is, you know, how does this passage fit in with everything that Paul has been saying in Colossians. These four verses seem like a pivot from where we've been. And in many ways, they are. In many ways, it is a pivot. Paul has been exhorting the church, the whole church, as the family of God, uh, no matter the role, no matter the difference, to embrace one another in community, to forgive one another, to love one another, to worship together. And here, he pivots hard, and he zooms in. He zooms in to, a specific, to specific roles within the nuclear family. So what is he doing? So first, what we should do is back up, and we're not going to just like back up to chapter 1, verse 1 or anything, but back up one verse. And take a look at verse 17. And in verse 17, we can see the bridge between where Paul has been and where he's going here. So verse 17 says, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And so key phrase here is, whatever you do, Whatever your role is, 
glorify Jesus in it. That's the key here. And so a couple weeks ago in, in the first paragraph of this sort of application section, we talked about how the universal lordship of Christ, which Paul outlined completely in chapters 1 and 2, it applies directly to our lives. It applies directly to us, both in status, in that we were raised with Christ, as well as in vocation. And by vocation, I just mean where you are in whatever you find yourself doing. Tomorrow, perhaps. Your roles relationally, your roles in society, your role at work. This is your vocation. And the universal lordship of Christ applies to it. It applies to our life with Christ. God cares deeply about what you're going to do tomorrow. He does. And so we shouldn't be surprised here when Paul decides to zoom in and talk specifically about vocations within the church community. Our life with Christ is not theoretical. It's practical. If it doesn't touch the most important areas and relationships of your life, it's not real. But, here's the thing, in zooming in and getting practical about marriage and family, which of course I appreciate because I'm, like, this is applying to me, we do run the risk of alienating those who are, are not falling into those categories today. So if, if you find yourself single this morning, or not a parent, and not a child, I want to make a pitch for you to keep listening. First, statistically, most of you will get married at some point in your life. Of course, marriage rates are declining in America as as it has been for decades. But even today, the majority of adult Americans are married, and nearly 90% of Americans will marry at least once in their life. And many of you who aren't married have a longing to be married, as well as to have children. Okay, but second, the relationships that Paul is talking about today So wives and husbands, children and parents. These relationships are firmly planted in the context of the church. This means that those of you who are married or do have children, neither your marriage nor your family is an island. It only thrives in the context of the broader family of God. And what this also means is that you singles matter to our marriages. You matter to our families. We might be distinct nuclear families, but we are just families within the family. So this means that you have wisdom to share with me that I need for the health of my marriage. And my relationships with my kids, and so on. So pay attention, because I need you. I need your help. 
Okay, so now that I'm done not alienating you, it's time to offend you. <laughs> Just kidding. I'll let Paul do that. So, what we're looking at this morning is what is called a household code. And this was a contemporary, as in contemporary in the first century AD, uh, in the Greco Roman culture, it's a contemporary device used in that culture, in literature. And so in the culture of Paul's day, this existed, this, this concept called a household code. And the household in this time was important politically because it was the basic building block of Roman society. And the Greek philosopher Aristotle, who wrote a couple hundred years before Paul, he writes about this and he says, he says, the primary and simplest elements of the household are the connection of master and slave, that of the husband and wife, and that of parents of children. And so you'll notice over the next couple weeks as we cover this household code that these categories are exactly who Paul addresses. But this is where the similarities end. The similarities between Paul and Aristotle. Paul may have borrowed this literary device, but he radically Christianizes it, as we'll see. So let's dive in. So looking again at verse 18, it says, Paul writes, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Okay, so you might be offended that Paul addresses wives first and at what he tells them to do. But hold your postmodern horse for a minute. As far as an ancient household code goes, addressing the wife at all, let alone first, is unheard of. It's simply not done. Typically, in Aristotle's perspective and opinion, the only person addressed in a household code, was the one with all of the power. That is, the head of the household, the free, married, father man. Paul, writing in roughly 50-ish to 60 AD, he reverses this trend. So, in each category, whether it's husband and wife, children and parents, masters and slaves, he not only addresses the members with less social standing, he prioritizes them. He gives them volition and dignity. And so for Aristotle, the husband, father, master was the only one who needed to be addressed. And the exhortation to him was to dominate. Period. He would be addressed and said, have your wives in subjection to you. Have your children in subjection to you. Moving on. And so here we have Paul addressing the wives of the Colossian congregation. And he asks them to submit to their husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And so if you were here roughly 14 months ago, or 15 or however long it's been, uh, and you were here during my second week as the lead pastor here, you heard me fumble through the parallel passage of this in Ephesians 5. And the word submit is used also in that passage, among other places. 
And what this means to submit, it means to voluntarily place yourself under the authority and care of another. That's what it means. And so notice what is not happening here. Notice that Paul isn't asking the husbands to ensure that this happens. Notice also that he is not using the word obey. Down in verse 20, we see that word. It says, children, obey your parents. This word submit is different. It's to willingly, voluntarily place yourself in the care and responsibility of another. And so he speaks directly to the wives and gives them the volition. And by, by volition, I just mean he's, telling, he's asking them, make this choice. You have the choice. You have the power to do this. And so he's giving them the choice to place themselves in a certain posture toward their husbands. And so then, this is a short verse. Aside from the comment that this is fitting in the Lord, Paul doesn't feel the need to explain his exhortation any further. He doesn't feel the need to back himself up, to elaborate, to clarify, like we might want. But, thankfully, we have the parallel passage in Ephesians to fill in some of the gaps for us. If you want to turn there, go ahead. It's just a few, uh, it's two, two books to the left. But in Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 22, Paul writes, he says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So that's the Ephesians parallel. And so what we find there is that for Paul, marriage itself is a metaphor. Marriage is a metaphor. Both the husband and the wife illustrate the relationship between Jesus and the church. As the church is led, protected, cherished, and sacrificially loved by Christ, so wives are to be led, protected, cherished, and sacrificially loved by their husbands. Paul recommends that wives voluntarily place themselves under this care. And so really, sisters... This is where you need to choose well. You don't want to have to lead your husband. You don't want to have to be the one to bring him along to maturity. You don't want to have to drag him along spiritually. You want to choose a husband that you can willingly, confidently, joyfully even, Place yourself under the care and responsibility of. It's only fitting in the Lord 
if the guy has submitted himself wholly to the Lord. If not, don't marry him. Now, I want to clarify because this does not mean wives don't co-lead the marriage with with their husband and co-lead the family. In Genesis 1, the first chapter in the Bible, that's an important passage to keep in mind, when God created us, male and female, he gave us a commission that is to be carried out together. Listen to Genesis 1, verses 27 and 28. It says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so we see a joint commission established. And then in Genesis 2, when we zoom in on the creation of Adam and Eve, we see God pairing them up and emphasizing two things. He emphasizes both their sameness, as in, you know, none of the animals were appropriate. And so God had to bring along someone who was as much the same, more, more same than the animals. But also he em- he's emphasizing the difference. So he's emphasizing both sameness and difference. She's not just another man. But the cap on the end of Genesis 2 is the famous institution of marriage that emphasizes the union and partnership between two distinct individuals. It says in Genesis 2, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast, and that's a word that can mean basically glue, glue himself, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so there's this partnership, husband and wife leading the family together. But Scripture is still clear here and sober in assigning the buck to stop with the husband. Okay, so we've covered the wives. Let's see what Paul has to say to us husbands. All right, look at verse 19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Okay? This verse is also very short. (laughs) But again, Ephesians 5 helps us fill in some of the metaphorical pieces. If you're over there already, go ahead and turn back. It's Ephesians 5, verses 25 through 33. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So here we have the metaphor again. And gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, 
because we are members of his body. And then Paul quotes Genesis. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Paul continues, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And so as you can see, Paul is all about this metaphor. And as far as metaphors go, husbands have the hardest part to play. You know, wives are reflecting the submission of the church to her wonderful Savior, but we husbands are supposed to play the part of Jesus dying for the church. Um, ouch. That's hard. And I think that's what Paul is getting at here in Colossians. What does he say? He says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. What's interesting about that word, the word he's using for do not be harsh with, is that the root of it has to do with bitterness. And so another way you could read this sentence could be, love your wives and do not allow yourself to act toward them out of bitterness. And we all know, when we are loving people, especially anyone that is hard to love, and let's just all be honest, that it is hard to love with someone you live with. Sorry, it's hard to love someone you live with at times, right? Because you see everything. Whether it's a roommate or a spouse, it's, it's hard. It's easy for that love to shift and to turn into resentment and bitterness. You know, I do all these things for you. The least you can do is put away your clothes, empty the dishwasher, or whatever. Paul addresses this reality with an exhortation not to act harshly out of bitterness. It's like he's saying to the husbands, Husbands, you have a huge responsibility to lead your household. The buck stops with you, brother. Exhibit Christ-like love, and don't let that be an excuse to grow bitter. Deal with your bitterness with God. It's not your wife's fault. Life is hard. And so husbands, I'm talking to you, and then also wannabe husbands, those of you who want to be husbands in the future, do you want to be a great husband? First, follow hard after God. Fear him. Humble yourself before him. Be loved by him. Don't ever forget that you, a man, are a part of the bride of Christ. First and foremost, you are to be loved by Christ. Prioritize that relationship, first and foremost. And he'll make you into a husband that a wife will be willing to place herself under, as far as the care, the responsibility. Second, so first, follow hard after God. Second, get godly men around you who are honest with you, 
and who you are honest with and can speak into your life. Open up yourself to them. Be known. The best way, if you want to cultivate bitterness in your life, let me tell you how to do it. Be isolated from other good and godly men. Remember that your marriage, your your family, these relationships are in the context of the bigger family of God. That's where they thrive. And the reality is that, you know, even though there is a distinction here, you know, even though there's a subtle hierarchy, if you will, day to day it won't look like it. Why? Because when I'm willing to lay down my life for my wife, it sure looks a lot like submission. I'm not saying they're the same thing because they're not. But if you're going to have a healthy marriage, it won't look even remotely like demanding your rights or flexing your authority muscles. Now, that's what Aristotle recommended. But Jesus has a higher calling. So we could spend, you know, the rest of our time talking about marriage, but Let's keep going and look at family life. Look at verses 20 to 21. Paul says, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. So once again, Paul reverses the typical household code, and he addresses the children first and directly. Now he does use the word obey here. And he asks children to obey their parents in everything which pleases the Lord. Okay, this is really good. Can someone grab Ella and Thea for this? (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) Sophia's listening. Paul is most likely talking about underage children, dependent children. Because in the parallel passage in Ephesians, it talks about raising your children up in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. So why is it a Christian virtue for children to obey their parents in everything? Why does this please Jesus? Once again, it's because of a metaphor. And this is a metaphor that we all live out. In Ephesians 5, Paul calls all Christians to be, quote, imitators of God as beloved children, he says. And so if you are here this morning and you have placed your trust in Jesus Christ, you are a child of God. And so this is a metaphor that we all participate in. And so because of that, my vocation as, an, as a literal father, as a biological father, it matters even more. Why? Because I'm reflecting the relationship that God has with my children. When I care for my children as a loving father, I am accurately reflecting God to them. When they obey me, when they obey Anna, their mom, 
They are reflecting the relationship God's children have with him. And so herein lies the problem. I'm not God. And so this is why in parenting, first and foremost, children need to be discipled to prioritize pleasing the Lord. In a sense, to look through their obedience to me to their obedience to him. And this is especially important when I fail to live up to my role, to reflect God well to my kids. When I lash out at them in anger, as soon as I can, as soon as I come to my senses, I need to point this out to them. I need to repent, turn, and point them to God's greater love than mine. I need to apologize. If I don't do that, my children might grow up thinking God is like me when I'm angry. But he's not. Thank God. You know, I'm the youngest son of uh, a pastor. I'm the fourth, fourth born in my family. And my dad was a pastor. He was not perfect. But you know what was unique about my dad? Whenever he would yell at one of us, out of anger, he would always quickly apologize. He was always the first to come back and say he was sorry. You know, pastor's kids, and I'm sure you've, you've heard the uh, stereotype, pastor's kids are notorious for walking away from the faith, especially after seeing hypocrisy play out in their own home. But all four of my dad and my mom's children are pastors now. What? That doesn't happen. And I credit that to to God. But much of that to my dad's willingness to admit when he was wrong. Because in doing that, his kids were able to distinguish between love indeed, but a flawed love and real love. The real love. And so, to be a parent is to teach a developing human being about the nature of God. When you become a parent, that's what you're signing up for. What a responsibility. What an honor. But what a heavy, heavy thing. And for the most part, it's not your words that matter. It's your actions. That's what teaches your kids about the nature of God. And how many of us have grown up and we, we have a, of a, a, a different kind of twisted view of God because of how we were raised? Of course, and thank God and the Jesus Christ that he can redeem that because he is the Heavenly Father. But how much better to be a parent and reflect God accurately to your kids. Not just in perfect love, because we can't do that, but in repentance so that they can distinguish between the two. And so finally, verse 21, Paul finishes up with an exhortation to the dads. Why is that? (laughs) Probably because dads are usually the problem, aren't they? 
Of course, moms and dads both can have anger problems, but like the husbands, the buck stops with the father. And so Paul exhorts us dads not to be jerks. It's pretty straightforward, and I I love it. It's just like, hey, dads, don't provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Some synonyms would be, do not exasperate your children. Do not irritate them to the point of you're serving your own ends versus trying to help them. You're just trying to help yourself. Lest they become discouraged or disheartened. And so usually when a parent provokes or exasperates or embitters or irritates or antagonizes their kids, it's because we're being reactive rather than intentional. And this is so easy to do. I'm a father of a 7-year-old, a 5-year-old, and an 18-month-old. I can't tell you how many times I'm in the middle of reacting out of anger to my kids and their antics. I'm in the middle of it. I'm, I'm, my voice is raised. I, I'm threatening, not threatening physically, but just I'm a threatening presence to them. And at the same time, in my head, I'm like, I wish I could stop and be gentle and caring and calm with them. It's like an out-of-body experience. And so Paul tells the fathers here, be intentional about how you parent your children. Don't be reactive. You want to be the one to blow wind into their sails, not to suck the life out of them. This is so hard, though. But Paul says, seek God's guidance. Wise counsel. Alongside your wife. (laughs) You guys are partners. You're you're teammates here. You know, I want to instill courage into my children, not cause discouragement. (sighs) But what it means is, I got to own my own flaws, which is painful. I'm so thankful for this passage, but I'm also so thankful that it is in the context of everything Paul has said so far. That, you know, marriage is hard. Marriage is hard. Parenting is really hard. But it's such a relief that the gospel the good news of Jesus Christ applies even to these relationships. I'm so relieved that there is grace and forgiveness in the midst of, e- of these relationships. That there is restoration possible by the gospel of Jesus Christ even for these relationships. I'm so relieved That as beautiful as the metaphors are, the real thing is what Christ has done for us in purchasing our adoption into the family of God. Paul reminds us in Colossians 1, he says, He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness 
and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The relationships of marriage and parenting are wrought or fraught with wrongdoing, with sin. We're all guilty of it. And yet, there is redemption. And yet, there is forgiveness. And yet, there is cleansing. As Tim Keller says, we are more sinful than we can imagine. And yet, we are more loved in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. We have to carry both of those realities. It keeps us humble, but it keeps us confident. And so whatever metaphor you are living, go all in. Even you singles get in on it. I'll finish with a quote from my friend Lori Krieg from her book, An Impossible Marriage. She writes this, When we married people love each other well, we serve as metaphors to single people for how God wants to become one with them. When single people love Jesus well and have a beautiful relationship with the church body, they serve as a metaphor to us for how we will all be in eternity. We all, we all are desperately needy for God's help in these relationships to do this well for our growth and for his glory. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are the God of redemption. You're not just the God of beautiful creation and design. You didn't just create everything to function well according to your plan, which you did. But after we walked away from you, you became the God of redemption, which come to find out you've been planning all along. That Jesus, you are the Lamb of God, slain from the foundation of the world. This redemption was always in your heart. And so, God, we're still in the middle of this already reality of of the kingdom of Jesus having been started we get to be an outpost of the kingdom, an ambassador of the future when you are Lord of all. And yet we're still in this not yet place where marriage is hard, where these relationships that define us a lot of times can also cut us down and pierce us so deep and hurt us so badly. But we praise you that you're the God of redemption, that you're the God of forgiveness. Jesus, we praise you for dying for the sins that we have committed while being a parent, while being a child, while being a husband, while being a wife, and everything in between. Thank you, like Craig said, that Sunday is a reminder that in you, we always have a reset. That in you, we always can have our hearts washed and cleansed. But also in you, we can be empowered to be the husband we were created to be. To be the wife that we were created to be. To be the children and the parents that we were created to be. I just want to pray a special prayer for those of you who find yourself in these specific categories this morning. Dear God, I pray for the husbands and the wives. 
and I pray for the engaged couples in our church. If that's you, if you're in that category, uh, engaged or married, go ahead and stand up, and I want to pray over you. Everyone who's married or engaged. Dear Lord Jesus, I pray for each person here who has a spouse, who has a future spouse. I want to pray that your Holy Spirit would empower them to do a God-honoring job in this role, whether they've been in it for 30 to 40 years or 30 to 40 days. Lord, your Spirit is the one who can empower them to lay down their lives for this person that you've called them to love. I pray for those who have been in marriages for a long time that need help, that are suffering, that there's pain, that there's, there's just long-standing issues to work through, to navigate. I pray that your Holy Spirit would short-circuit the process, God, and shift things in this next season. I pray that the fog would lift, that hope would dawn, as the sunrise. I pray for those that are preparing to enter this place of marriage. God, that you would assist them in knowing exactly what it is that you're calling them to do, that you would prepare them by giving them a deep-seated love for you, a deep-seated reverence and desire to uh, fear you above all, and then they can then love out of abundance and not strive out of their own strength. I pray for those who are parenting, especially young children and even grandchildren. I pray for energy. I pray for strength. I pray for grace. I pray for wisdom. I pray for love. And help us as a, as a family to come alongside and surround one another in these places, in these relationships. I pray for those who long for marriage, who long for partnership in this way, that you would meet their desire. God. You provide for them in this way. You say that if a man desires a wife, he desires a good thing. And so I pray for those as well. And Lord, whatever vocation everyone here finds themselves in today, tomorrow, this week, this season, I pray that your spirit would empower us for it. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right, we're going to spend some time in response, in praise, in worship. Uh, if you want specific prayers so that you can share a little more specifically what's going on in your heart, in your life, you can come forward and receive prayer. Dor and Tiffany will be available in the right and left pews to pray over you. And then if you have submitted your life to Jesus uh, and you want to partake, partake of the Lord's Supper, which is a reminder of what provides the reset, what provides the cleansing, it is the broken body and the poured out blood of Jesus Christ. So come on up and take of communion in your own time during these next few songs. Let's sing.